Now, while that's happening, the rest of us, if you'd love to open your Bibles again and turn uh, to 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, if you were here at the very start of the service, uh, you'll know I mentioned that uh, Craig is going to be opening up God's Word for us. We're diving back into 1 Kings as a series, and we last got to chapter 17, so this morning we're picking things up at chapter 18, and because it's a long passage... I'm going to read part of it now, and then we'll read the remainder of it before the sermon, before Craig gets up to speak. So I'm going to read now 1 Kings 18, the first 19 verses of that chapter. And it's probably another pretty well-known passage from 1 Kings, the one where uh, where Elijah uh, confronts Ahab, and he has the, the battle with the prophets of Baal. Okay, so... 1 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals." So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go and tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I, not, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, 
Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Uh, sorry to leave on a bit of a cliffhanger there, but we will get back to it a little bit later before Craig gets up to speak. Well, I'm going to continue reading from 1 Kings chapter 18, where Josh left us hanging on the edge of a cliff. So Josh left us at verse 19, so I'm going to pick up from 1 Kings 18, from starting from verse 20, and I'll read through to verse 40. So that's 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, 
God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Stephen. Well, for those of you who are new here, my accent is South African, if you were wondering. And in February 2018, I was back there in the city of Cape Town, which is where I'm from, for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And that time was quite a confronting time to be in Cape Town because that whole region was gripped by a fierce drought. You probably knew about it. It was all over the the world news. And the dams were so empty, they were reaching the point where people were worried about day zero. Day zero was only a few months away. Day zero was that day when you would go to your tap and nothing would come out when you turned it on. While I was there, water was restricted that each person was only allowed 50 liters a day. That's for everything, for washing, for uh, the toilet, for drinking, cooking, all that stuff. People were already, I saw this, in fact, friends of mine were doing this, were, were seeking drinking water from local springs. And so they were lining up to go and collect some water from there so that they could at least perhaps get more than 50 liters because it's 50 liters restricted coming out of your tap per person. It was a real crisis And it was not only brought on by a drought, certainly what drought was a major factor, but also poor planning by the authorities. Now, one of the images that struck me around that time was the one that's on the screen now. It's an image of Cape Town's most important dam, biggest dam, and this dam is almost empty. That dam was created by expropriating vineyards, And it was first filled, flooded, in 1979. And here, 39 years later in that picture, those vineyards are visible again. What you have is a picture of serious disaster. But day zero never came, because the following winters, just a few months later, Incredible rains came, that that first winter and the following ones. And currently the the dams, all the dams, all around are sitting at about 95%. Now I'll tell you all that because I want you to be thinking about drought and how serious it could be if you could not get water out of your tap. The story before us this morning is also one of drought. And chapter 17 tells how that drought began, where Elijah the prophet told Ahab, the wicked king, that Israel, from that statement, that declaration onwards, would be under drought because they're under judgment. 
So if you flick back in your Bible to 17 verse 1, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Chapter 17, chapter 18, that whole section of 1 Kings is, is a desperate story about a serious national disaster. You may remember when we were in chapter 17, we met a widow and her son, and they were preparing their last meal because they had been economically affected by the drought. There was nothing left to eat. They were going to have their last meal and prepare to die. In chapter 18, where we are now, we are three years into the drought, and God tells Elijah to now go to Ahab and say that the rain will return. Immediately after that's told to us in verse 1, we are told in verse 2 that the famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria, the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom. The capital city is in severe trouble. And when we get to verse 5, we see how severe it actually was. Because here in verse 5, Ahab calls Obadiah, this is his household manager, the person who is overseeing his whole household, his palace and all of that. Ahab calls this man Obadiah to come with him and look for grass. They're trying to find grass wherever they can to try and save some animals. Look at verse 5. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. See, these chapters are about a terrible drought. By the time we get to the end of the story in chapter 18 and verse 45, the drought is broken because the rains come. So clearly what we've got spreading across this section of 1 Kings is a national disaster and the story of how it came to an end. But much happens in between the peak of the drought through to the relieving rains. And so it's not just a story of a national disaster, a story of a drought. It is a story about God. It's a story about relating to God, living in God's world. And the question I want us to consider this morning as we think of this story is, how do we live in this world? How do you live in this world? How do I live in this world and relate to God? Let's think about this as we explore chapter 18. I want to think a bit about Ahab's Israel. You know, when you talk about a time, an era in a country, you, you often hear people say that, you know, they talk about Hawke's Australia or Howard's Australia or Reagan's America. I want us to think about Ahab's Israel, and I want us to see how bad it was. It's a terrible time. First of all, they worshipped Baal. Baal was the god of the Phoenicians. Ahab had married a Phoenician woman called Jezebel. And she was a powerful personality. And she, with that powerful personality, 
was committed to worshipping Baal. She shaped the thinking of the country. If you look at verse 19, you'll see that the prophets of Baal and the prophets of another uh, god, a goddess, Asherah, you will see that they eat at her table. Now, you would ask yourself, this is God's land. This is the people of Israel. Why are the prophets of the Lord, the true God, not at the table of the government, of the king and the queen? Well, verse 4 tells us that Jezebel had cut them off. She is determined, and Ahab with her, this is, this is not going to be a country shaped by the Lord and his prophets. And that is how society works today too, isn't it? I think it is. Uh, the elites of our day, they set the agenda. They decree how people are to think. I read about it in the papers all the time, and I hear it from many of you as you talk about your workplaces. You are told how to think. And so the government, the media, educational institutions, corporations are pushing more and more, they're pushing ungodly ideologies. And the thing is that there's this thing called cancel culture, and that hangs over your head because if you don't comply, you may well be canceled or, or cut off. Jezebel cut off the prophets. In recent times, it's become more and more unacceptable to believe a biblical view of things, on many things. Just this week, I came across a headline that said, school faces outrage after Christian view of sexuality would be taught to children. That's a Christian school. And the parents who are signing their kids up are told that that's what will happen in the Christian school. Outrage. That's the times we are living in, and our elites are making people think that way. Ahab and Jezebel led a government that pushed false uh, worshipping of a false god. Now, Baal was an interesting one. Baal is the god of fertility. And archaeologists have dug up uh, reliefs of him, images of him, and in many of them he holds a bolt of lightning because he's also the god of the weather, the god of, of rain. And you can see how that's linked to fertility. No rain, then no fertility on the earth, no crops. But now drought brings death. It doesn't bring fertility. So where is Baal? What's he doing? Jezebel may have thought perhaps Baal was angry. And so he's withholding the rain. Angry perhaps about Elijah. Angry about the, the continued existence of of prophets that she hasn't managed to cut off, prophets of God. Elijah was intensely disliked, and Ahab was furious that he could never find Elijah. Why did he want to find him? Well, I think the likelihood is to exterminate him like the other prophets had been exterminated. And so that's one of the things about this uh, Ahab's Israel. It's into Baal worship, but also into persecution because of it. Ahab's Israel persecuted the righteous people of God. You may have heard of a man called Steve McAlpine. Steve is a Perth pastor, and he wrote an excellent book three years ago called Being the Bad Guys. And if you can see the title, you'll see the on the screen, you can see the word bad. 
is stamped over the word good. So he wanted to say being the good guys, but no, we're not the good guys, we Christians. We are the bad guys. And so it is a book about how to live in a society that thinks that Christians are bad and think that what's in the Bible is dangerous. It wasn't like that in recent past, in a, a few decades ago. A few decades ago, there was some respect for what's in the Bible, for the morality there. But our society has decayed, and we are not wanted. We are the bad guys. And that book talks about how to live in that kind of society. And this was the case also in Ahab's Israel. It had decayed. In verse 3, we we read that Jezebel had cut off the prophets of the Lord. She cut them off. That literally means that she had killed them. It wasn't, we don't have anything like that. We might, we might get canceled and cut off in that, in that way. But she has literally cut off their lives. They were not wanted. Obadiah, Ahab's household manager, as we've seen, he was a godly man. He had secretly helped 100 prophets of the Lord to hide away, and he had organized food to come to them. There you have a man who is godly, and he's defying his king in a way that is right. Because serving God always trumps obedience to the king of the land when the king or the government is doing evil. God is the highest authority. And you can see in this this tension He is the household manager. He has respect for the king, but the king does not like God's people. It's a very dangerous time. When Elijah asked him to go to Ahab and tell Ahab, Elijah is around and will meet with him, Obadiah was afraid because he knew how much, how badly his master wanted to get hold of Elijah. And he knew that if he were to go to Ahab and say, look, I've seen Elijah, and he, he's announced that he wants to, to see you, that if Ahab then went off to go and meet Elijah and he wasn't there, he knew that he would be killed. He probably would have been told, well, why didn't you grab him when you saw him? Now I've got to go to meet him and he's not there. And so he knew he would face the fanaticism of Ahab and die. That conversation that's not here going on between Obadiah and Elijah shows the vibe of Ahab's Israel. It tells you of what life was like there. It's a place of tyranny. The people of the land were not comfortable. Those who are serving God certainly not comfortable. But Elijah promises that he will indeed face Ahab. And when he does, we see more of what Ahab's Israel was like. Because you see hostility. The government is hostile. How did Ahab greet Elijah when he saw him? Look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? See, there's a, I don't like you. You you are the cause of trouble. He's blaming Elijah for the drought. Elijah did declare that the drought would come, and it came. He did declare that it would end when he said so. You are the troubler of Israel. This terrible national disaster is your fault. Well, how similar this is to our times. We are often said to be 
the troublers, the ones who cause difficulty and problems in society. We are told that what we teach about sexuality causes people to commit suicide. We are told that our teaching about sin, that every human being is naturally a sinner and needs God to rescue them, we are told, well, that just causes mental health problems for people. You're telling people that they are naturally bad. And so you are the troublers of Australia, you Christians. No, we're not. It's a ridiculous thing to say because, you see, in a time when more and more people on the census form declare themselves to be people of no religion, in a time where we more and more and more walk away from biblical principles, isn't it astonishing to find that we have greater and greater social problems? Our society has decayed. We are not the troublers. Anyway, Elijah is not faced when he is told this, and he speaks the truth straight back to Ahab. Verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house. And here's why there's trouble. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. He's saying straight to the king, you are the problem and the previous leaders, because they and you rebelled against God. Now, Ahab should know this. He's an arrogant man. Arrogant people don't care about the truth. They will push what they think is right, what they want to be right, right the way through. Any argument that you make that is a good argument, any plausible point that you make, they'll just push right through it because they are arrogant. Ahab should know, he does know, that he's the problem. Listen to what King Solomon prayed when the temple was consecrated back in 1 Kings 8. So if you at 1 Kings 18, flip back because it would be good for you to see it. In 1 Kings 8 and verse 35, King Solomon, at the height of Israel, when Israel, when it was still Israel and Judah as one nation, when they were doing so well and the temple had been built and now consecrated, this place where the people could have their sins brought and be made right with God and connect with God. This is what Solomon prayed. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. You see, he knows there will be sin down the line. Human beings, it's a big problem for us, our sin. He knows it's coming. So he says, because they have sinned against you, heaven shut up, no rain. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Clearly, the drought is not Elijah's fault. Ahab knows this as the king. He knows the, the history and the story of the God of Israel. He knows what's in the Bible. The prophets speak, and what does he do with the prophets, him and his wife? Cut them off. Kill them. He knows. You see, Ahab's his hostility is all based on lies. When he suffered God's punishment for his sin 
And as we see in, in Solomon's prayer, that, that punishment, that drought is designed so that they are taught the good way, shown their sin, shown that they need to repent. Instead of that, he blames God. And then he goes off persecuting the Lord's servants with terror. That is Ahab's Israel, Baal worship and persecution. Well, now we turn to Ahab's Israel being confronted. Elijah confronts it. Ahab is a weak man. He can do nothing about the drought. He's now desperate, looking for bits of grass for some of his animals. And so he has no choice now but to listen to Elijah's instructions. And Elijah sets up a contest to confront the Baal problem and to prove who the true God is. You know, the world, like Ahab, may be vicious in its attitude towards God's people. But this, this moment reminds us that they are nothing. If we are facing hard times because of people like Ahab, this tells us they are nothing. And so do not fear. They may be able to do things to us that hurt, but they cannot kill our soul. And now the moment arrives where the people, not just the prophets of Baal, not just the government, Ahab, but the people are brought to be confronted about their ridiculous idolatry. Elijah calls the prophets of Baal and the people to Mount Carmel. Now, I think the location is strategic. If you were to look on a map, this is very, very close to Phoenicia, very close to the land of Baal, where the people worship Baal, where, where that worship comes from. Elijah then puts the issue to the people when they are gathered, and he effectively calls them syncretists. Syncretists. What is a syncretist? A syncretist is a person who tries to mix religions together. So look at verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? It's not that they necessarily, the people have necessarily completely rejected Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. It's kind of like they've got that going, mixing in Baal worship as well. It's quite common thing that they did in Old Testament history. And so he says, how long will you go on doing that? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. It, 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 is, it is such a wise, clever, smart thing to say. It is ridiculous to, and people do it today. They mix all the religions. They think you can have them all together. When they contradict one another, the religions of the world do not say the same thing. You can go to each one and find that there's a fundamental difference between this one and that one. So stop being so ridiculous is what he is saying here. He is saying, choose. If, if the Lord is God, go with him. If Baal is God, go with him. Stop limping between the two. And this mixing is certainly the way of our culture. Many will tell you, oh, you know, all the religions, they, they're all the same, essentially. They're all different ways to God. Churches around and about, there's some not far from where we are here, run into faith services. I heard of a Christian woman in, in a church not, not uh, unlike ours, seeing a fortune teller. People will say, can't there be room in a tolerant world 
for both the Lord and for Baal? And the answer is, no, they can't. Elijah says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. We need to think about these things because we may also be limping without even realizing it between two different opinions. We say that we worship Jesus, that he is, he is the king, that he is the Lord. And yet we find that we are playing around with other things. So are, are, are we giving ourselves to, to, to worshiping materialism? Do we find our joy and our delight in gathering many things or in hedonism, in pleasure? Is that what makes us happy, fulfills us? Are we, in a way, worshiping another God and mixing that with the Lord Jesus? Do we perhaps worship our culture? Just the ways things are done in our particular culture that actually are not godly, that clash with the Bible. Do we do that? And we do it because our parents did it, and it's the way that we were raised, and we insist our children do it. What if it clashes with the Bible? And often it does. And all, all cultures have their things they do that are, that are unbiblical. We must worship the Lord and the Lord alone. We must not syncretize. We must not compromise. So the contest on Mount Carmel shows without any doubt who God is. Elijah lets the many prophets of Baal go on for hours trying to get Baal to respond and send down this fire to burn up the sacrifice they've got. And all they get after these hours is just silence. And it's a comical scene as Elijah mocks them in verse 27. He suggests that they cry out. So he's saying, try this. Okay, he's not their prophet. He's not their expert in their religion. Try this, he says. And they do. They cry out. Nothing happens. It's a pathetic scene. Them taking his advice. And he asks them whether Baal is not hearing them. Because he had to go to the toilet. Is he relieving himself, he is saying. All of this is, is to highlight that no one is listening. There's no one there. In verse 28, we see the intensity of these prophets as they cut themselves to show their devotion, as they, they are trying to get their God to act. Look at verse 28 and 29. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The story is powerful because of the deafening silence. Why is there silence? Because there is no one there. Baal does not exist. And that is why it's so foolish to go into the ways that our elites are leading us in, in our time. We might be tempted to. We might be afraid. There's nothing in it. And in this case, Baal is not there. Then the story turns to Elijah and the Lord. And here we get to know God better. Get to know Elijah's God. Elijah makes his sacrifice so wet, he gets them to pour water over it again and again. There's a trench all around it full of water that you wouldn't be able to light it in the normal manner. It's just drenched. 
And even if there were bunnings in those days and you could get some kind of flame-throwing thing, like my father-in-law kills his weeds with, you couldn't, you couldn't light it. It's wet. And then he calls on the true God with one short prayer in verses 36 and 37. And he asks the true God to answer so that the people may know that he indeed is God. And immediately the Lord answers with fire such that the offering and even everything else, including the stones of the altar, are burned up. And the contrast is massive with an obvious message. The message is that the Lord is God. The people even bow down and they say that. They say the Lord, he is God. Now, I said earlier on that this is not just a story about a drought in ancient history. And it's also not just a story about who the true God is. That's a big part of it. And we've come to that point now in the message this morning. We see who the true God is. It's not just about that. It is also about what the true God is like. Think about this. Elijah repairs the altar with 12 stones. These 12 stones represent the people of God with whom he made a covenant. So as the stones are put into place, the 12 stones, they are reminded as to who they are. They are the people of this this covenant-making God. And in the covenant with his people, God had given them a system to deal with sin, the sacrificial system. It was God's way for them to be able to get out of sin, to turn away sin. Think back to earlier times in the Old Testament. I don't have time to go into it now, but in Leviticus 9, 23 to 24, we have a moment where in the, in the beginning of the sacrificial system where Moses and Aaron um, go into the tent of meeting and then a sacrifice is set up. And how is that sacrifice burnt up? In the same way, where fire comes falling from heaven and it says the Lord consumed the offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. All the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. And the same thing happened when David made an offering in his life. The same thing happened when Solomon consecrated the temple. And so what you're seeing here with Elijah on Mount Carmel is a God of mercy. It's a God of grace who forgives sin. It is a bell-ringing moment that takes you back to all those other times in their story, in their history, where God forgives sin through sacrifice. And so here with Elijah, the people had indeed been wicked. And it would seem that the, that, that the sin of humanity means that we cannot have God. We, or we, we are cut off from him. It's hopeless. There's, there's no way to God through Baal. There's no way to God through any of the other false ways that we find in our world, the false religions. But what we find here is that the true God is interested in redeeming people. And so have a look at verse 37 in chapter 18. And you'll see there that Elijah is showing more than that the Lord is the true God. It's not just this is a true God and Baal is false. He is showing that the true God is concerned for people so much so that he works to provide a way to turn their hearts back. Look at verse 37. 
Elijah says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, so that part, yes, and that you have turned their hearts back. God is the one who does the work to bring people back to himself. He's not just going, look at me, I'm a superpower, and zap, I can take, take this, this, this offering out and even the stones underneath. That's not all that's going on here. He's saying that he is concerned that people are made right. And so we find the system actually works. God does receive the sacrifice that is put on behalf of the people. So when he zaps it all, he is saying the people are forgiven. I've received your sacrifice. How do we know that God really has forgiven the people in that moment by receiving the sacrifice? Well, when we get to the end of the story of chapter 18, it ends with the rains. The rains come. That drought was judgment on them, saying to them, you are very, very much in a bad place. You're not right with God. You're under judgment because of your sin. But when the sacrifice is received, the next thing is that the rains come because they've been forgiven. They've done nothing to be forgiven. It's because of a sacrifice. And that animal sacrifice through the Old Testament was always a picture of the true sacrifice that actually pays for sin. It was always a pointer to Jesus. And that is why Jesus says in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, what he means is put on the cross and sacrificed for the sins of those who believe, he says, I will draw people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. He's a sacrifice for the people of the world who come to him. And then when he's lifted up, you can know God. You are drawn to God. You are, you are connected to God, made right with God through that ultimate sacrifice. He has provided the way for us to be forgiven. We don't do anything. A sacrifice is needed. We have just got to put our faith in that sacrifice, which the people were doing with Elijah because they came and helped him to put, put it together. And then they received the result of the sacrifice, which is forgiveness. The gods of human invention, like Baal, are horrible. Cutting and blood flowing and all that horrible stuff. But the true God is beautiful because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, offers himself as the acceptable sacrifice that truly deals with sin. I want to close with this. How do we know that he is truly God? How do we know that Jesus is the true God, just like the people saw when the fire came and zapped everything, that the Lord is the true God? We know because just like those people saw with power the truth, who is God, we, we have seen that too. In Romans 1 and verse 4, talking about Jesus, verse 4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, and here it comes, by his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead. And so I want to say to you as we close, that we serve, if we are with Jesus, we serve the true God. And what is he like? He is forgiving. 
because he provides a system, a way, a sacrifice, so that our sins might be dealt with, so that we can then be drawn to him and be right with him and know him. That's what was shown on Mount Carmel, a God of grace and forgiveness. Well, let's pray and let's thank him for who he is and what he's done. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for giving us the stories in the Bible that are not just stories, they're accounts of who you are and what you are like. And thank you that we can see there that you are a God concerned for people to be made right with you, for people to thrive. You want the drought to go. You want the rains to come. You want the people to flourish. But the sin needs to be dealt with, and you've provided the way. And we thank you for all those pointers in the Old Testament that are about the need for sacrifice and that the true sacrifice is in Jesus. We thank you that it has been made possible for us to be drawn to you, the one who created us, the one we offended. You've made the way open. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your cross and your willingness to go there. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.